It's Jared. So now that we know for sure after the Electoral College results were confirmed that Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States, there are a few questions that still surround the Trump administration. And I'm not talking about an evaluation of the past four years or anything like that. I'm talking about in the next month, what is going to happen in the Trump administration? And one question that a lot of major media outlets are discussing is Trump's abuse of the judicial system going out specifically through pardons. And I think for a lot of people, the idea of a pardon, both federal level and state level, is a little confusing because our entire judicial system is built around these very intricate proceedings and appeals processes and really tries to define the truth, or at least it's designed that way. It obviously doesn't achieve that all the time. But a pardon seems like the complete opposite of this, right? It seems like this one executive who can kind of magically wave a wand and all of a sudden resolve some judicial problem. And that, as I said, sounds more like a monarchy than any sort of democracy. But it exists, and in fact, it's in the Constitution. This is not some recent development. So I started thinking, why does this pardon exist, and how specifically does its existence affect the Trump administration? So to break down both the constitutional, moral, and political understanding of the pardon, I sit down today with Mark Greenberg, a law and philosophy professor at UCLA, to break down what Trump is doing and how it's part of a much larger narrative in the American judicial system. If you're interested in the next month with the Trump administration or just the idea of how our judicial system works, I think this is going to be a really great episode. So Stay tuned. Hi, Mark. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Real good. Strange times, but uh, muddling through. Yeah, I would agree with you. And probably all of us are feeling somewhat in the same vein there. I'm really excited for our discussion today because I think pardons, even in the past week or so, have really dominated some headlines. And I'm really excited to kind of delve into them in the more abstract sense to understand where we are right now. But before doing that, if you could just tell our audience who you are and how you've kind of developed an interest in researching and studying the pardon system. So I teach in the philosophy department and in the law school at UCLA. I've been there for about 16 or 17 years. I I taught at Princeton before that. My interests in philosophy are in philosophy of mind and language and in philosophy of law. And in the law school, I teach things like criminal law and a course on the Supreme Court as an institution. Pardon powers, in a way, are at the confluence of different interests of mine. I've been very interested for years now in legal interpretation, including constitutional interpretation. I'm also interested in moral philosophy and in criminal law. And you might think that the pardon power falls neatly at the intersection of these three. In order to understand the pardon power, you have to do basic constitutional interpretation. The pardon power obviously operates in this sphere of criminal law. In fact, it can undermine the operation of the criminal law. And there are important moral aspects. Pardons have connections to moral notions, justice, forgiveness, mercy. So, you know, I hadn't written about the pardon power before, but Trump's presidency 
got me interested. And over the past three years, I've written a few short pieces about Trump's use of the pardon power. Yeah, I think that's really interesting point. It's something that got me interested in looking at pardons is that it really is kind of a confluence, as you said, of both larger political theories, moral philosophies, and kind of tangible law. And I think it's a really kind of unique element. In the most abstract sense, what is a pardon and why does it exist? Well, I think we have to distinguish the question, what is a pardon in the general sense from what is a pardon within our legal system. So you, maybe you're mm. asking about the legal, but I think we have a notion, a, a moral notion of pardoning someone or forgiving someone, perhaps is a, is a more colloquial way of putting it, which is outside the specific legal context. So I think when we talk about pardoning someone for something that they've done, we are both recognizing that what they did was wrong, but somehow deciding not to hold them responsible for it. Mm. And I mean, that's a that's a tricky notion. Why would you both recognize that someone did something wrong and yet not hold them responsible for it? And then in the legal system, our legal system, and, and this derives from the English legal system in the 18th century, our legal system allows the president in the federal criminal system and the governors in the respective state systems to grant pardons. So the, the legal effect of a pardon is different, whether the person has not yet been prosecuted or has already been convicted, say, and is in prison, or again, has already served a prison sentence. If a person hasn't been convicted or even charged, the pardon can prevent them from being charged and convicted. If a person has already been convicted, it frees them from the further consequences of that conviction and it wipes the conviction out. It's not an exoneration. It doesn't in some way officially recognize that they weren't guilty of the offense, but it does remove the consequences of the conviction. Yeah, I think that's kind of a really interesting point. And I think that something that I at least didn't understand, and I think a lot of people might confuse, which is that a pardon does not say like, we got this decision wrong, and that you are not guilty. It's instead, as you mentioned, you are guilty, but for whatever reason, and we'll get into that very shortly, you shouldn't face some sort of consequence from it. And yeah, as you said, I had a bit of a kind of a moral dilemma thinking about that. But the more I read some of what you wrote and looked into it, it starts to make a little bit more sense, at least in the abstract. So hopping into that, what is both the constitutional idea behind a pardon, as well as, as you mentioned, the moral motivation behind a pardon? So I think of pardons, at least legitimate pardons, as falling into three different categories. And each of those categories has some, some subcategories. So the first category is the most straightforward. That's the kind of case in which the person should not have been convicted in the first place. And this can be for, for several reasons. It might be that the person simply didn't commit the relevant crime, factual innocence. It might be that the person committed the crime, but there was something wrong with the prosecution. Perhaps the prosecution was undertaken for political motives or out of vindictive reasons, or perhaps the, and, and this is an important category of cases, the conduct we no longer regard as appropriately mm. treated by the criminal justice system in the way it was. So a good example would be that after prohibition, where 
alcohol was it was illegal throughout the United States. After prohibition ended, there were pardons issued for offenses involving the sale and transportation and manufacture of alcohol during prohibition. Although the people weren't innocent in the sense that they had engaged in the relevant conduct, it was no longer regarded as appropriate to have been criminalized in the way that it was. Another good example is the pardon of people who dodged the draft in Vietnam. So as I say, that, that first category of cases, there are different subcategories, but the basic idea is it wasn't just that the people should have been convicted in the first place. And those are the most straightforward. They're also in a way peripheral to the purpose of the pardon power because really those cases should be dealt with, ideally they should be dealt with within the judicial system by the courts. If someone hasn't committed the crime in the first place and there's evidence of that, ideally a court can overturn the conviction, but in real life that doesn't always happen. And so pardons do have a role to play there. But closer to the heart of the pardon power are cases where it's not that we think that the person shouldn't have been convicted, but rather we think that the person shouldn't suffer the kind of punishment that mm. they're undergoing. So the reasons for punishment no longer apply. These might be cases in which the defendant has really changed his or her life and made amends. Maybe the defendant has already served his full sentence, but many years later is still subject to the various adverse consequences of a conviction. For example, they're unable to practice law or they're unable to serve on a jury. In another kind of case like this, defendant has specific circumstances that mean that they would undergo disproportionate suffering. So for example, perhaps a gravely ill prisoner who's serving a short sentence for a crime that's really not that serious might be pardoned on the ground that the person doesn't deserve to die in prison. Mm. So that's a kind of case where it's not that we think that there was something wrong with the conviction, but we think that the consequences are unfair. Another kind of case is, is where we think these are, these are trickier, but where we think that maybe the, the defendant actually sincerely believed that they were doing the right thing, even though in fact they were doing the wrong thing. So that's the, my second category of cases where we think that the reasons for punishment no longer apply or in some way mitigated. Then the final category, I think, is the most troublesome. And these are cases where the reason the person was rightly convicted and the reasons for punishment do apply. But there's an argument that other interests of the society outweigh mm. the reasons for punishment. So the classic example of this, which is very controversial, is Gerald Ford's pardon of Richard Nixon. Sometimes after there's some kind of deep national division, a new regime takes power and it seems to be the best way of bringing the country together again, putting the division behind us mm. to issue a pardon. So after the, the Civil War, during Reconstruction, there were pardons of this sort. All this third category of cases are really troublesome because they really are saying that there are other reasons that outweigh justice. And so they're not justified on the ground of justice. And in fact, these kinds of pardons are often motivated by partisan politics. Yeah, just hearing you talk about it kind of gives me all these questions because to an extent, each of these 
three categories. The first one is somewhat straightforward and usually can be rooted in some sort of fact or procedure. Yeah, as you mentioned, something that is more tangible. But the last two are very difficult and I think raise a lot of moral questions in terms of who is to make this decision, I suppose, right? Because the idea that a pardon is invested in a singular executive or within an administration controlled by an executive in the US, a lot of those cases, specifically, as you mentioned, the last category are really up in the air. And as you said, you know, partisan politics could at this day and age can pretty much justify any sort of action that says, well, this outweighs in the long run. So then my kind of question that it led me to is, are there any restrictions on pardons, either constitutionally or from any statutes that would prevent some sort of questionable justification in that third bucket of cases, like the ones that Trump has done in the past few years? So let's start with the Constitution. We'll get to statutes later. The language of the pardon power, like the language of many parts of the Constitution, is very general and vague. And some have tried to say that this means that the pardon power is extremely broad. In fact, that it's unrestricted except for the explicit restrictions that are given in the Constitution. The Constitution clearly restricts the pardon power to the federal system. And it makes clear that the pardon power doesn't apply to cases of impeachment. Uh, But other than that, people say, look, the, the language just says the president has this power, so it must apply to everything. So first of all, that's a really bad argument. The Constitution is filled with provisions that have very broad language, and yet the relevant rights and powers are restricted in important ways. So take the First Amendment, for example, which says that Congress shall pass no laws abridging the freedom of speech. So nonetheless, there are many restrictions Mm -hmm. uh, on what people can say. You can't give secrets to the enemy. You can't say false things about other people that damage their reputation. So the the question is, what is the freedom of speech that Congress can't restrict? You have to understand it in the context of history, in the context of the the rest of the Constitution, and so on. Similarly, uh, with the pardon power, it's actually well understood that despite the broad language, the pardon power does not reach to conduct that has not yet been committed. So the president couldn't pardon someone for whatever they do next year, for example. Similarly, it's uncontroversial that the president couldn't issue pardons that violate other constitutional provisions or principles. For example, the president could not pardon someone on the condition that they convert to Roman Catholicism. That would violate the religion clauses of the Constitution. So to start with, we've seen that the broad language doesn't take us very far. We we still have to engage in ordinary constitutional interpretation, which requires looking at the history the purposes, the structure of the Constitution, other provisions. And in fact, we can see right away that there are some restrictions. So let's talk more specifically about what those restrictions on the pardon power are, other than the ones I've mentioned. And now we get into more controversial territory. So first, I think it's extremely important that legal powers, whether the pardon power or others, can only be exercised for legitimate purposes. Just to take a very different kind of example, we have the power to enter into contracts. Ordinary citizens have the power to enter into contracts. But if they enter into a contract to commit a criminal act, for example, a murder, that contract isn't valid. And similarly, the president's powers 
have this kind of limitation. To give an example outside the pardon power, the president has the power to make war and to order missile strikes, for example. But it would clearly be unconstitutional for the president to order a missile strike in order to eliminate a personal enemy, because that would be the use of a constitutional power for an illegitimate purpose. And so I think it should be well understood, even though it is controversial, that the president should not be able to use the pardon power for unconstitutional purposes, for example, for personal financial benefit. Or the president should not be able to use the pardon power for undertaking vendettas against political enemies. So, for example, this president has sometimes issued pardons that seem to be for the purpose of undermining prosecutors that the president wants to take revenge on. Mm. So that's the important restriction to the pardon power that it has to be exercised for legitimate purposes. And one other way of backing up this idea is to appeal to the important provision of the Constitution that says that the president must take care that the mm. laws be faithfully executed. So I think that brings out the idea that the president has to act in good faith in the national interest rather than for personal gain or to carry out vendettas. So another important restriction on the pardon power is that the president can't exercise it in ways that would violate other provisions of the Constitution or deep constitutional principles. And so a very important example here, in, or when we have President Trump in the background, is that there is a deep constitutional principle that no one can be a judge in their own cause. What this means is that no one should be able to make government decisions that affect their own self-interest. And we see this principle all over the place. Judges have to recuse themselves. They have a personal or financial interest in a case. Government officials can't make decisions about cases in which they have a conflict of interest. And so I think that the consequence of this deep principle here is that the president cannot issue a, a pardon to himself. So these are just examples of the kinds of restrictions on the pardon power that are uh, within the Constitution. Now, you asked also about statutory restrictions. Because the pardon power is a constitutional provision, it can't be restricted by statute. So the Justice Department has an office of the pardon attorney, which has a whole system of procedures under which the pardon power is normally administered, which try to make the use of the pardon power more systematic and fair. So it's not just a whimsical matter of the president issuing a pardon to a friend or political fellow traveler. But these procedures are not binding on the president because the president's mm. pardon power is a constitutional power. Yeah, I think that is really interesting because there is no systematic restriction and instead kind of this precedent-based restriction where there's these like larger constitutional values that are obviously somewhat vague and amorphous, you get a lot of these large questions. And one that I was probably going to follow up on, but you touched on already was if Trump could pardon himself before he was to leave office. And most people, yourself included, don't think so. But as we said, there's not, you know, a bright line or a clear kind of yes or no answer to that. So if that was 
to be the case, I think that would be a very, very interesting constitutional crisis, not to use that buzzword too much, I suppose. But in a world that is after the Trump presidency, in a post-Trump world, how do you think the pardon should be used and how should it be reformed, given kind of this experiment we've seen in the past four years with it? So you ask how it should be used. And I, I think in a way, in our conversation, we've already made a distinction between the substantive way in which it should be used and the procedures mm. according to which it should be used. We haven't used those terms explicitly. But so substantively, we've discussed different categories of cases in which it's appropriate and inappropriate to use the pardon power. So and this is, in a way, this isn't saying much. The pardon power substantively should only be used in cases where there's been a miscarriage of justice, the first category of cases we talked about, or the second category of cases uh, where the reasons uh, for punishment no longer apply, or perhaps in certain very unusual cases where the reasons of justice are outweighed by larger societal interests. But of course, and I think this is what you're getting at, just to say that that's when the pardon power should be used doesn't really solve the problem because when we have a president who's not acting in good faith, or even we could have a president who, who was acting in good faith, but just had bad decisions, just made bad decisions or had poor judgment, it can be a problem. What prevents the president from making these kinds of bad decisions? So then we come to procedural restrictions. And as I've said, we actually have in the Justice Department, in the Office of the Pardon Attorney, a whole raft of systematic procedures to try to make the pardon power operate properly. It lays out, for example, guidelines for people who want to apply for pardons. But these procedures are, as we've already said, not binding on the president. So what we really need is a reform that restricts the use of the pardon power, both substantively and procedurally. Now, unfortunately, we can't have that without constitutional amendment. And constitutional amendments are hard to come by. You know, in general, I think we tend to think of constitutional amendments as almost impossible uh, because there tend to be important political interests on both sides and without getting a great majority, a supermajority on board, we're not going to be able to make a constitutional amendment. I wonder whether the pardon power is an exception to that general rule of the mm. practical impossibility of constitutional amendments. It seems to me that there ought not to be a political constituency that favors the kind of whimsical and untrammeled use of the pardon power. It seems like whatever political views you have, whatever political party uh, you favor, you wouldn't want the president to be able to use the pardon power in this whimsical kind of way, unless you're very short-sighted and you just happen to be thinking in terms of, well, you like the current president. So I wonder if there might not be political will eventually to reform the pardon power. Perhaps in an ideal system, we could put the pardon power in the hands of a committee rather than a single individual, and we mm. could make the guidelines under which people apply for them, and we could make sure that pardon power is applied in an equal way so that if a pardon is given to one individual in particular circumstances, it has to be given to every individual in the same circumstances. But I'm probably being overly optimistic given our current political climate, even proposals that wouldn't seem to be partisan end up being politicized. 
Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, because as you mentioned, a lot of people now doubt the ability to get a constitutional amendment on pretty much anything, given both the hard procedural requirements, which hopefully we'll touch on in another episode, as well as the heightened polarization that exists in the current political climate. Those two just don't seem to mix. But I agree with you to an extent that the pardon seems like something that really doesn't have a massive proportional impact on one party over another. As you said, unless you're just so short-sighted that you only care about the next one or two administrations, that that theoretically could work. And for some of our listeners who remember our episode on campaign finance, that was kind of the similar argument used there. So I'd be very interested to see kind of the traction that would gain if it was proposed. But Mark Greenberg, thank you so much for coming on. This was a really, really insightful discussion. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Contested. If you like what you heard, please visit our website at contestedpolitics.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. I'd like to extend a big thank you to Mark Greenberg for coming on, and he's written some fantastic pieces about pardons that I really encourage you to check out. As always, thank you to Adam for editing, Catherine for the social media, and until next time, thank you for helping us understand politics together.